0: Prepare your ears, humans. Happy, Sad, Confused begins now. Today on Happy, Sad, Confused, legendary actor Jodie Foster on her extraordinary career and her latest role in The Mauritanian. Hey guys, I'm Josh Horowitz. Welcome to another edition of Happy, Sad, Confused. Yes, if you check your podcast feed, this is an extra episode, guys. We're in bonus territory. And if you're listening to it, On the initial day I'm posting it, Happy Valentine's Day. Let me explain to you why it's Valentine's Day and why you're listening to this. 30 years ago today, guys, 1991, February 14th, guess what happened? Silence of the Lambs. One of the great films in the history of cinema, not hyperbole. It's a classic, a Stone Cold classic. I've maybe seen it more than any other film not called Star Wars. Came out, so I thought... Jodie Foster on her first appearance on Happy Second Fused. What better day than to debut debut this conversation on the 30 year anniversary of Silence of the Lambs? And yes, we talk quite a bit about Silence as well as many other aspects of her extraordinary career in a uh, a really special conversation. I've wanted to have Jodie on the podcast for some time she you know she is a part of hollywood history from her first oscar nomination in taxi driver all the way up to her performance in the mauritanian the new film from kevin mcdonald which is a a true story it's based on a true story of the injustices at guantanamo bay features her alongside benedict cumberbatch tahar rahim who's also receiving awards love as is jody and one of our favorites shailene woodley so great ensemble great film check out the mauritanian and see The latest from Jodie Foster, who always delivers in front of the camera. Um, She's also a hell of a filmmaker, too, from her first feature directing uh, effort in Little Man Tate. Um, She's directed probably, what, five or six movies by now. A lot of television. We talk a lot about her evolution as a filmmaker, her views on streaming versus theatrical. Uh, We had to talk about Contact, one of my favorite uh, movies back in the day. A lot covered in this chat. And I will say... She was a trooper. Some technical difficulties in this chat. We're going to do our best in the edit. Hopefully you won't notice the seams. Uh, By the way, that rattling you hear, that's Lucy. That's a cameo from the new new Horowitz dog who's adorable but also restless right now so right after this intro here's a fun fact Lucy's getting a walk Um, but yes there were some tech difficulties uh, on this one we lost connection a couple times so we'll try to patch it up hopefully you won't notice it too much but know that um, if it sounds a little janky at parts that's why Um, but Thankfully, Jodie Foster was was amazing. And uh, yeah, so very thankful for her and her time today. Um, other things to mention, as this is an extra episode of Happy, Sad, Confused, you already know Stir Crazy. You already know the new stuff coming up on Stir Crazy, uh, the newest episode of Stir Crazy coming up in just a couple days. I'll give you a sneak peek. It's Noah Centineo, the dreamboat that is Noah Centineo from the To All the Boys movies. He is a delight. Check that out in just a couple of days. One other thing I do want to mention, I've mentioned this before on the podcast, is The Wake Up, which I've mentioned uh, in the context as a podcast. It's done by my friend Sean McNulty. It's a great digest of media and entertainment headlines every single weekday. He's also got a newsletter right now that I subscribe to, and I would highly recommend. It's always going to be in your inbox when you wake up. Go to thewakeup.substack.com. Check it out. Again, just a nice, easy it's peruse digest of everything you need to know in media and culture and entertainment, the wakeup.substack.com for all your media headlines. Okay, that's all the preamble for today's show. Happy Valentine's Day. If you're listening to this on Valentine's Day, why not listen to Jodie Foster and then check out Silence of the Lambs for the 100th time because that one does hold up. Uh, here's me and, yeah, I'm going to call her a legend. The legend, Jodie Foster. Calm down, Lucy, I'm coming. I'm coming. She is relentless. Bye. Well, there's no pomp and circumstance, though. In this case, I feel like it's deserved because <laughs> we've got royalty. We've got Jodie Foster on the Happy Sag Fuse podcast. I'm doing something right. Um, Jodie, it's a pleasure to have you on.
1: Aw, thank you. What a nice introduction.
0: Um, congrats on the Mauritanian, but more importantly, congrats on Aaron Rodgers thanking you. In his MVP speech, this is a significant accomplishment.
1: Yes, isn't it? I am a I am a cheese head through and through. So that was pretty thrilling. I have to say that might be one of the most thrilling shout-outs I've ever had in my life.
0: Was that unexpected? Give me a sense, uh, give me uh, give me some background too. How did you end up a cheesehead? How did you end up being a Green Bay Packers fan?
1: Totally unexpected. And I've never met Aaron Rodgers. And um I it's a really it's such a dumb story about how I became a fan. Uh, because I loved, I I I didn't always love football. I think I loved it when I was seven, when the uh, the International House of Pancakes gave you those little tiny helmets. Sure. And I learned every single one of them and I put them up in my room and I made sure that they were all in a row and all that kind of stuff. And then um, flash forward like about 40 years um, and somehow I got interested in football and got into it. And then someone brought me a cheese head and I was like, oh no, this is my team. So of course I started following them and then, you know, the love just flowed out of me. What can I say? So does that- Devontae Adams is my is my person. I know it's, it's not it's not okay to be possessive of your- No. Uh, the, the people you're, you're fans of, but he is mine. He belongs to me because when I played fantasy, I just, you know, I looked into him, I researched him and I was like, he was my guy and he made me win.
0: Do you still play fantasy football?
1: I haven't had the opportunity because i had to choose between politics and fantasy and um sadly these last four years have yeah have have taken me down that path because you have to choose between the two you cannot you cannot do both
0: that's interesting yeah i haven't correlated that in my own life but i used to be Baseball was my sport growing up. I'm a New Yorker, and I grew up with the Yankees. I was like to qualify it by saying that I was a Yankees fan in the one dry period in the Yankees. I know it's like, <laughs> I, I know it's like, oh, he's rooting for like the Dallas Cowboys. It's just like, no, no, the, the Yankees sucked when I was a kid. Trust me, guys. Um, but anyway, I was a big fantasy baseball player up until a few years ago, and I chalked it up to, I don't know if it was quote unquote maturity, other things going on, but maybe it was also distractions of politics. Who knows? Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Um, so, congratulations, uh, not only on the Aaron Rodgers speech, but on Mauritanian, another <laughs> fine you. piece of work.
1: <laughs> um,
0: I, I'm a big fan of Kevin McDonalds and and your co-stars in this. This is uh, this has all the right ingredients and it really works in this case. Um, you found yourself yet again in an awards discussion. I know this is a silly kind of weird topic to to talk about, but the reason I bring it up is it is a part of your career. I mean, first of all, of course there are the two Oscar ones, but it's also back to the beginnings. Uh, the first time you were nominated, you were what? Yeah. 12, yes. 13, 14?
1: Yeah, I, had, I did taxi driver when I was 12, but I think by the time I was nominated, I might've just, just been turning 14.
0: So yeah. what are your memories of that part of it? I mean, it, obviously, award season stuff was way different then. It's a whole different ballgame now. But, like, yeah. did it register as something exciting
1: and important back then or what? Well, it was. It was so exciting for me because I grew up in a movie oh. television family. So we, you know, we would go into my mother's bedroom and we had a black and white television set and everybody would sit on the floor and, you know, we'd watch the Oscars. And that was just a part of my childhood. I mean, it never occurred to me that I would ever have anything to do with the Oscars or that I would ever be in it. I did, however, once, and sadly YouTube exists because I'm sure you can probably find this. um, I sang a song on the Oscars when I was, I don't know, maybe nine or 10 um, with Johnny Whitaker, who was my co-star in Tom Sawyer and um, Napoleon and Samantha. And we sang a song, a Disney song. So I had been to the Oscars before
0: you are a veteran even by then, of course yes. you were. If any, I forgot who I'm talking to for a second. <laughs> I do take a certain like uh, amount of comfort in the fact that you're being discussed. You may end up be nominated opposite your Alice Doesn't Live Here uh, co-star Ellen Burstyn is oh, yeah. being talked yeah. about. And there's something satisfying and makes me happy that the people that I've grown up with <laughs> are still delivering amazing work, that Ellen is is just like killing it still that your career has evolved in different ways. And, and I don't know that I need these touchstones in my life.
1: (laughs) Yeah. You know, look movies, I mean, I used to believe, and this was true in my life, that movies were the most meaningful thing on earth. And for me growing up, they really were like, you know, everything that I knew about Vietnam, I know because I knew because of movies and every you know what i knew about jfk i knew because of movies like it was this kind of like refracted universe that i lived yeah. in that affected me more than anything else and i changed through them i mean there are movies like you know deer the deer hunter or uh the piano or you know fearless or any number of movies that i can genuinely say that my heart was changed for those films and i, I will never be the same um however i did reach a certain age where i realized Eureka, there are other things in life that are just as meaningful as making movies. And I can't quite believe it took me that long. Um, and, you know, I, I, I have had to sort of put them to the side and say, you know, when they are meaningful, I will participate, but I can't, Yeah. Um, they can't be everything for me.
0: You, you know, you've said before, I believe your, your mom told you to be prepared because you were going to be your career was gonna be done by what, when you were 17?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, she says as soon as you turn 18, that'll be it, that'll be over. And,
0: so yeah. give me some perspective as somebody that uh, is a couple years past 17 or 18 and is still killing it. Are, are you surprised at the viability, at the roles that are still out there that you have been had this iterative career that keeps kind of reinventing itself?
1: Yeah, I feel really grateful and lucky that I get to, you know, just be a part of making movies. I mean, honestly, I'd be happy being a boom operator or being a camera operator. Like, I I just, I want to be a part of them. I want to be a part of of not just the actual physically being on the set with a bunch of 125 people and that kind of family feeling that you get, but also being a part of changing the culture and, and making yeah. the culture better instead of worse. So, you know, for me, that's just, it's just been a mission. and And I feel really proud of being a part of this community. But... Yeah, I can't quite believe that I'm still acting because that just seems crazy that I'm still doing the same thing I did when I was three. Um, well, well, not to mention you—you're you, on
0: record, and like every time you know you come you come around and talk talk about your career, I feel like every five or ten years you're like, yeah, I'm probably this is this could be it. I'm maybe
1: this is it. <laughs> I do that all the time. I do. I kind of opt out all the time, where I, I'm like, this is it. I'm done. I'm done with acting. Um, I never get tired of movies, either as an audience member or as a filmmaker, as a director. I mean, I know that will always be something. Um, but acting is a, it's a tough job because it isn't just acting, unfortunately. It's also representing and yep. it's, uh, you know, celebrity culture and, you know, trying to navigate that and control that, which is difficult, especially now. Um, so uh, there are moments where I just don't want to have anything to do with celebrity culture and I, where I just can't bear to have to navigate it. Um,
0: do you- what about the, the work itself in terms of the, the quality of roles that come across your desk, your email? Do you, are yeah. you, do you get a lot of good offers, a lot of roles that are really meaningful?
1: Uh, no, but I think uh, that's normal. I, I think you, you do hit, hit a certain age and things start to calm down and um, where roles for women of my age are, you know, fewer and far between. Uh, I think, you know, men do have an advantage, but their roles are shrinking as well. But they do have an advantage. You know, the human experience is thought to be the male experience, so um yeah there are less roles for women um that are interesting but I I have great faith I really am excited about the roles that I'm going to be in in my 70s 60s and 70s because I just feel like there's a kind of a hump that you get over the 50s are this weird lacuna it's just like it's just this weird place where you're not quite old enough to uh to, to have, you know, to show that life on your face and to be able to jump into, you know, the older actress roles, but you're not young enough to really um, lead in the same way. Right. So, uh, and, and you're still, you know, the sexuality thing is just like, do I continue with the sexuality thing? And, you know, or do I not? Or, I don't know, it's just a weird time period and I'm glad that I'm reaching the end of it. And oh, and I realized I don't have to be 70 to play 70 year olds. So this is very exciting. I can jump in and have a whole new career and and also to be able to support other actors. I mean, the greatest benefit of doing The Mauritanian was to be in that room with Sahara Rahim to have him channel Muhammadu Slahi's character and to watch him give the performance of his life and to hold the space for him. You know, both Shailene Woodley and I were just sitting there going like, do you believe how lucky we are to be in this room with him? Yeah, And to not mess him up, we're gonna not mess him up. That's gonna be our goal today is (laughs) do not mess up Tahar. Um, And it's just, it's thrilling.
0: Uh, He's exceptional in the film and he's getting uh, rightfully a lot of attention as well. I mean, it's, yeah, I mean, when I heard about this, you know, it's the right director for this material, too. Kevin McDonald knows this kind of docudrama treatment. Um, I'm a huge Benedict Cumberbatch fan, as any self respecting film fan is. Yeah. Um, what are the questions that you ask Kevin before saying a final yes to this? Like, what's important to, to reassure you before you put your, your heart and soul into this one?
1: Well, I instantly knew that, his, that as a director, his vision was in the right place. You know, he brings that documentary spirit that he talked about where he, he looks at all the characters and looks at all of their points of view and really gives each one of them a voice, which I think is, is the mark of a great documentarian. Um, he's really interested in the facts and and always starts from the factual basis. But he has this great sense of cinema. So I knew that he was the right guy for this, that he wasn't just going to make a biopic or that he wasn't just going to do a document, that he was going to really look uh, to be inside Mohamedou's experience and to let us see the cinema in that. Um, But I guess my biggest concern really was the script of just, you know, you have a lot of material, you have a lot of documents. um, There's a lot of information. How are you going to condense this in to you know, rather than a, that, than a factual, uh, chronological story, you know, how are you gonna condense this stuff and, and, and get rid of the stuff that's extraneous, that doesn't help us understand who Muhammad was.
0: It's interesting because like, we've heard this, maybe this particular story or other stories like this, we've heard the horror stories about Quintana bay but there's nothing like actually watching a depiction of it and feeling like relating to his character and kind of being in his shoes and, and seeing it through his eyes. I mean, that, I think that's the power of the story is like the power of cinema generally is to relate to people that you may not initially think are relatable. Um, And
1: look, you know, this may be one of the first times in a mainstream Hollywood movie um, and certainly non-mainstream. We have seen this, but in a mainstream Hollywood movie of really seeing a complete Muslim American character, who is complex? Who has contradictions? Who is, you know, who 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 has a full experience on screen? And uh, I'm just really happy that we were able to do that. Um,
0: yeah. The, the the woman you play, uh, Nancy Hollander. Uh, it's not she's not somebody that the general public will know. It's not like a 99% of people will know what she looks like, know what she sounds like, mm-hmm. know her body of work. So it is that kind of weird gray zone for you, I would think, where it's like. want to be respectful to this woman and her life and work don't want her and her family to come after you but you don't but you also know you have some liberties like you can serving the story you're not doing a Nancy Hollander biopic
1: Exactly. So I didn't have to be handcuffed a bit to her, um, to the reality of who Nancy was. But I was really inspired by her. I mean, she's just this amazing person who, you know, has a lot of con- contradictory things. And she wears that bright red lipstick always, and the bright red, li- bright red nail polish. And she likes to shop, and you know, wear black leather and drive race cars. Like none of that fits with this very, you know, sober, methodical, uh, intellectual. Um, brilliant lawyer that she is. I mean, you just wouldn't put those two things together. So that was intriguing to me. But I was very clear with her. And I said, look, it's not going to be an imitation of you because nobody needs, nobody cares about me imitating you. Um, be different if you were, you know, Johnny Carson or whatever. <laughs> but, I'd watch that, yeah. Yeah, right? <laughs> Jodie Foster is Johnny Carson. Um, so I was able to take certain liberties. And I I, I said to her, look, my goal is to, and uh, as as is yours, is to serve Mohamedou's story, in order to do that, I'd really like to build a character that, in some ways, expands parts of you and then diminishes other parts of you. So I'm going to be a lot meaner than you are in real life. And she's a lovely person, and my character on screen is, you know, a lot ruder and a lot more blunt and um, hard etched
0: It's interesting. You, you, We've mentioned the ensemble. We haven't touched on Shailene yet, who, you know, so my my day job for many years uh, and continues to be in some portion is working for mtv and covering films oh, for cool. mtv so i get to know people like shailene through like fault in our stars and kristen who i want to get into too kristen stewart right. through the twilight films and stuff and i'm fascinated i mean both of those women are, are, are fascinating and smart and and the way they've navigated their careers and lives is very admirable but i'm also curious because you stand as this like you know, the woman on the top of Mount Olympus for the, the transition from child actor mm-hmm. to sensible, sane, smart adult. <laughs> and for a lot of actresses and young actresses in particular, you know, the place you hold for them. So I'm curious, like when you're on a set with Shailene, I mean, do you know that? Or does she, is that a sense of like innate mentorship? I mean, you're not going to be presumptuous, and think, and be like, I'm going to be your mentor now. But mm-hmm. at the same time, She's looking to you, I'm sure, when she goes. Maybe, on
1: maybe, but boy, I learned a lot from Shailene. I mean, I just learned so much from her. She's so brilliant and and kind and just so down to earth. Um, I think she's the most real person, actor that I've ever worked with, and um, I yeah, I just adore her. So we hit it off like a house on fire, and I I don't think of her as like mentor mentee. I really do. Just think of her as a friend, um, and maybe that's how I relate to kids in a way like when I'm directing kids I don't I hated when directors treated me like a baby right. and so I really relate to the younger people that I work with like as if we were, we're just regular friends you know and uh, that's true of Kristen as well I mean and there she was she was almost 11 she, she had her 11th birthday when we were doing panic room and I had so many fun conversations with her. I just can't think of anyone else that I would want to be locked in a room with for a long period of time, Kristen. Like, you know, we'd have fights about, you know, she thought U2 was just a boy band. I was like, a boy band? Are you crazy? You know, we we would have these, just these long conversations of just lying around in the panic room, you know, having long conversations about life and she's just so much fun. I just love her so much.
0: She's also turned into quite the cinephile. I mean, she's going to be. A, yeah. She's already directed shorts, and she's, I know, embarking on directing a feature. Uh, do you guys continue those kind of like film-centric conversations now as peer-to-peer, as opposed to? I mean, I guess you always were peer-to-peer. It sounds like from the beginning.
1: Yeah, kind of. I mean, I, I, we haven't really kept in touch, but whenever I see her, I'm just so happy to see her, and I'm just so proud of her. And, you know, it's it's hard for me too because I wanted to protect her. You know, she's such a cute. I was pregnant while I was shooting Panikron, so through my mind was like. Wait, is my kid gonna be like this kid? Um, I always had this idea that somehow I would have a cool kid like like Kristen. So I feel protective of her, and I felt protective of her at the time, and I worried that um, it would be a cruel job for her, you know, that it would be. And so I I, I was always concerned about her as she turned eighteen or nineteen, twenty yeah. as a child actor because you know, it's just so hard. It's so hard on people. And um, when well, yeah. she was
0: put, she was put through the ringer and we saw what, what could happen and you came to her defense in those tough times. I mean, and, and to see the tabloid culture really try to try to chew her up and nearly succeed and to see yeah. her come out the other side is is really impressive.
1: Yeah. And she, she is coming out the other side. And so I always, I do feel this pride about seeing all the girls, the girls that have either played me as a child or played or that I was a mom to in the movies, you know, Jenna Malone, for example, or, You know, Anton Anton Yelchin. I mean, I just loved Anton Yelchin. And um, I think one of the best moments of making movies as a director for me was sitting in the car with my headphones on, listening to Anton Yelchin and Jennifer Lawrence just say stupid things before the takes you know just just laughing with them to they had this such a great intimate relationship, brother sister relationship the two of them
0: you were as i recall i think you were a part of the doc weren't you love antosha did you talk that was such a moving i mean tribute to him i mean what a special guy he was oh my gosh he
1: really was yeah
0: um you mentioned Panic Room, um, you know, like any self-respecting cinephile, always obsessed with Mr. David Fincher. You came to that in unusual circumstances. I know um, you were supposed to work with him, as I recall, prior. The game almost came about, for whatever reason, mm-hmm. it, it it fell apart. Mm-hmm. So there was no bad blood, clearly. It was just sort of like, after that, like, and this the opportunity came, you were good, he was good, it, you were just off to the races,
1: yeah, we were always on the same team on the, on, on the game as well. I think we, we had agreed with everything that had gone down. So we, we had never lost, really lost touch with each other. I think we always liked each other. And, uh, and I so uh, admired him as a filmmaker. So I would have done anything for him. Does, does um, he get
0: the credit he deserves as an actor's director? He gets so much props as a technician. Is he serving the actors? I mean, because he's like, he's on the record. I mean, we know we know the process by now, ad nauseum, all the takes, et cetera. And he has a method to his madness. Does it elicit, in your experience, great performances? Because he does draw out some pretty great
1: stuff from actors. Sure does. I mean, you have to be a certain kind of actor to be able to re- Respond to the type of direction that he gives. I mean, I always say David Fincher's a better actor than I am, and sometimes I'll I I see him when he he'll give notes that are so, um, you know, uh, they're very specific, and they're they you could see that an actor might take them as not giving them so, you know, being not free, right. So Being constrictive. So he might say something like, you know, turn your head on this line, or you know, when you. You know, when you close your eye, make sure that, you know, your finger is you know, on your head or something. Um, and I love that. I kind of love these restrictions because I have to, it forces me to find truth and, and then still, you know, be able to hit these marks that he gives me. Yeah. Um, so I really respond to that. I really like that. And I, and I, I, I do recognize that it makes a very, uh, it makes a different kind of movie than the kind of movie that a lot of actors who work with. It's a very intentional film. Um, but I really respond to that. I know, you know, Robert Downey Jr. responds to that. I, I know a number of actors that I've worked with really respond to that. And then there's some who are like, I just want to, you know, I just want to f- be free and live and breathe. And, you know, I want to, I don't want to have hit my marker. I don't right. want to, I don't want to accommodate the technical aspects of filmmaking. And there's nothing that I love more than, than feeling like you're creating the movie with the director. Right. Well, and, and
0: the beauty is that as we well know, there's no one right way to do it. On one film, you can go one way and it can be rewarding in its own way. And yeah. it just suits the, but, the filmmaker and the collaboration. And it's, but all, it's, I mean, nev-
1: it's none of it is ever arbitrary for David. He's right. always got a reason and um, he is he's the smartest
0: guy in the room. Always. He's like, he can always. do it. He, yeah.
1: So there's, there is never a question. I mean, I remember once while I was shooting with him and I, he, he asked me to do a physical, Thing. And I said, you know, that's going to force us into Cri- Kristen and I being separate. And let me just show you what it would look like. Okay. This is what it would look like if we did this thing. I said, so this way that I'm suggesting is gives you more heart and connection and intimacy and gives you like, it's a, it's a much more, you know, vulnerable experience. And so I said, now this other way, let me do the other way for you. This is a little bit more, you know, it's a little drier, it's technical, it's colder. Yeah. And he's like, Hmm. Do it the cold way. I was like, okay. <laughs> hey, I'm giving you so,
0: options. Looked, I mean, that's that's your job. Choose A or B. All good. Yeah,
1: and so I appreciate that. And his films are, do have a very specific feeling to them. And um, and I, you know, I love those movies. You
0: know? I'm curious, going back through your career, when the transition from like, when did you start to make your own choices as an actor? you 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 obviously had a very close relationship with your mom. She presumably was steering the early. Career? Did you have much say or was it sort of just like, oh, I'm going to go where I trust my mom? And when did you kind of start to stand up and say like, no, I want to do, I want to do this. I don't want to do that.
1: Well, I did trust my mom and we did have conversations about things. And we had conversations about movies that we went to see, you know, foreign films that we went to see. And she'd say, you know, why do you think this character did this? Or, you know, why do you think this, it was shot this way? Like, So we we had a real dialogue about filmmaking. Um obviously when I was 5 or 6 she kind of just picked things for me and I and I and I did them but as time went on um I really loved her choices and I could see in some ways that she was drawn towards the things that had to do with her life that were and I was in some ways acting out um what if scenarios vicarious scenarios for questions that she had about her life um and that is a very complicated relationship that single uh single mothers have sometimes with their children and i know it's a little it's a it's complicated but i i think it made for some good work there came a moment where she was not reading as quickly as i needed her to read and we had some disagreements about uh projects and I, the one that that sticks out is Sounds of the lambs where she was just being the devil's advocate i think and she was like you know why do you want to do this movie where you're the real the the wonderful uh part in the movie is hannah lector and your part is kind of uh you know has a mechanical quality to her and um and you just want an oscar and why would you want to do this you should do something flashy and we just completely disagreed about it um and after that i realized like oh i guess i am a grown-up
0: um as we chat today uh happy 30th anniversary because 30 years ago valentine's day oh yeah Silence of the Lambs came out. Talk about a film appropriate for opening on Valentine's (laughs)
1: Day—a
0: perverse spirit at Orion and Jonathan Demme. Uh, Do you remember it opening specifically on that day, and what you thought about that?
1: Absolutely, I thought that was it was really a ballsy move, Um, and they were not sure that this was a good good date. In fact, they a lot of people thought it was a terrible date. You know, movies uh, like that didn't release in February. February is supposed to be a month where nobody goes to the movies, and um, a lot of people thought it was a big mistake and it ended up of course being uh, you know a huge huge boon for us um, i just everything about that process starting with thomas harris's book i think was felt divinely inspired and it felt like we all did our best work and we'll never reach that again
0: no it's it's totally true when i look back on it i i think i was probably 14 or 15 when it came out it is like it's <laughs> for such a dark film it is the most rewatchable movie i i can think of it, it is the marriage of the script, the production, the unusual choice of Demi as director. I mean, people forget yeah. Jonathan Demi was coming off married to the mob. How? I mean, at the time, did did you think like this is the guy to direct this? Did it No, seem like an I thought choice? it was.
1: I thought it was a terrible idea, and I was really worried, of course, because I was like, you're giving it to Jonathan Demi. You know, I want to make this movie, and you know, he's not going to make it with me. So I had the powers that be at Orion. I, I think uh, Mike Medavoy at the time was the head of the studio, and. Um, He said, look, I know Jonathan Demi. Jonathan Demi is amazing, and you have not even seen the best of what Jonathan can do. So, sorry, we're Orion, and we believe in directors are more important than anyone. And I was like, okay, I (laughs) believe that's true, too. Okay. Um, So, yeah, it was a a ballsy move by everybody and certainly by Orion to to bring Jonathan on. But they knew something I didn't know. They knew his depth.
0: It's so funny to look at the, you know, his infamous, like, use of these kind of staring down the barrel right shots mm-hmm. for, for actors because when i think of sons of the lambs i think of that but i also think of like the intimate connection between you and hopkins in those scenes i presume anthony wasn't taking the day off when you were shooting <laughs> <laughs> and vice versa but talk to me about how like was it tough to establish those that intimacy when you're staring down the barrel and not into the eyes of another actor
1: yeah that technique is a hitchcock technique that um jonathan was experimenting with at the time and he talked about um he read that this was something hitchcock did and so that he wanted to uh use it in the film and he said look the audience will get used to it after a while It'll be weird at first and they'll think like what's going on why is the actor looking in the camera and then uh, they'll get used to it uh, uh and so we did do shoot things two ways because i he, sometimes he wasn't sure whether it was going to work or not um you're absolutely right that if if there are any scenes where Lecter is staring down the barrel in his close-ups or I am staring down the barrel, I cannot see him. So uh, we used to stand behind the camera and he would hear my voice and or I would hear his voice, but we wouldn't see each other. And sometimes that would be for almost a whole day.
0: On those days when you did that, did it feel like you were in safe hands or this was going to work or what?
1: It felt weirdly interesting. Um, it felt incredibly intimate. I mean... Um, you know, I talk about this sometimes. Um, having a relationship with the camera, right? Um, and under... Uh, is... It's, it's... You know, you, you are... In a weird way, without the distraction of having another person, you can have, like, this hypnotic experience of being intimate with the camera. And I think that that's, that's what you're getting in the, some of those... To the barrel close-ups, where you're getting yeah. this sort of hypnosis feeling, um, and it feels more intimate than anything. It feels like you're doing radio, right? In a weird right. way, it's like doing radio.
0: Do you remember seeing the film with an audience back then? Because I vividly remember the reactions a half a dozen times in the movie. Like I've never seen an audience like scream back, like in the final sequence yeah. when you're rescuing her. Um, yeah, they're well, part of it.
1: I was sort of surprised by that. I mean, I the first time I saw it, I saw it alone, which was sort of a mistake. Um, And then, I maybe I saw it a couple of other times after that alone or something. But then I arranged for there, before the release, I arranged for there to be like a screening of the final cut when the final cut first came out with music. And I arranged it for some friends of mine because I happened to be working at Orion and they had a screening room and I was like, can I have my friends? And so I think it was a 90 seat screening room and I had like 50 people or something. And it was the first time that I'd seen it with anyone. And, I was all super excited about it. I was like, I think the movie's kind of good. I mean, you know, I hope you like it. And they all came out. I don't know if I even stayed in the movie theater. Yeah, I did stay in the movie theater. And they all came out and I was ready. I was like, oh, we got food, we got stuff. And they were all like, oh. (laughs) They were all kind of not bummed out, but just like affected. Yeah. And I hadn't anticipated that at all, I guess. Um, I just I hadn't anticipated and I knew that if it actually hit my friends like that, that, that we were in for something. And that was I'm, long before the movie was released and long before I ever saw it with a real movie theater. Then of course on the day that the film was released, I went to movie theaters and I was, you know, I got to see the feedback a little bit. I went to a couple movie theaters and saw the feedback and it was, it was strange.
0: The one other thing I wanted to ask uh, on the silence front that I'm just curious about, we're, as you well know, as a student of film in recent years, we're in this kind of like legacy sequel culture. And obviously, yeah. Anthony has reprised the role mm-hmm. a few times. I find it difficult to believe, Jody, as somebody that <laughs> follows this stuff, that they have not come to you and said, let's revisit Clarice Starling in her 50s and see where she's at. Has that discussion ever happened? And have you even vaguely entertained the thought?
1: Clarice in her fifties has never happened, uh, but no, nah. But the um, look, we were all really inspired by Thomas Harris's book. You know, that's why Silence of the Lambs is great, is because of Thomas Harris's book. And all of us, whether it's Ted Talley or, you know, we all know that that's that's why we were able to give the performances that we gave. You know, was because of the truth of that book and and the beauty of that book. So it's really hard to, you know, it's hard to imagine um, unless it is you know, gangbuster, fabulous, it's really hard to imagine reprising it um, because somehow it diminishes the the effect of that wonderful, that wonderful movie. Um, you know, there's been some stuff of uh, the years of, you know, reprising her, but um, both Jonathan and I, I think, were, uh, we're, we're disappointed not to do the sequel um, based on a Thomas Harris book. You know, we were just, we, he waited 10 years for Thomas yeah. Harris to write the second book. Not the second book that write the book in the in the in the series um and um it was a big disappointment for us that we weren't able to make that film
0: did you ever watch it or was it too close to
1: uh i I have never watched that one. Interestingly, yeah. that one I've never watched. I have seen other ones, but I have not watched that one. I did actually really like the um, the Red Dragon Reprisal. I actually I was like, oh okay. There's a lot that I really liked about that, and I I really love the first Red Dragon too. And I thought it 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 really benefited from having somebody come in and re rethink it.
0: Yeah, yeah. They 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 cast the hell out of the uh, the remake of that one at with Yeah, release, they really right? did.
1: Um, Ray Fiennes. was amazing. Oh, amazing.
0: Yes. Yeah. Um your directing career, I definitely want to talk about a bit because you know it's um, and that that coincides with *Silence of the Lambs*. *Little Man mm-hmm. Tate* was, I believe, around the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, Alan Parker had a famous, amazing quote about you and Bugsy Malone saying that uh, if I had been run over by a bus, I think she was probably the only person on the set able to take over as (laughs) director. You were probably 13 at the time. Yeah. Were you secretly plotting even at 13? Were you kind of absorbing everything knowing this is when they were up, I'm gonna get there?
1: Um, I definitely wanted to direct. Um, I remember being six and doing a TV show, and and the the actor came on that day, and he was the director of that episode, and I was just freaking out. I just couldn't believe that actors could be directors, and I thought, oh my gosh, that's what I want to do when I grow up. Um, and yeah, so it's something that I always knew that I wanted to do. I just didn't know that I was going to be able to. I didn't really know any women directors. Um, Someone I think when I was about thirteen, uh, Lena Bert Mueller, uh, I, I saw my first Lena Bert movie, and and then that kicked kicked up the interest again, because I thought, wow, she's a woman, she's a director, she can do it, maybe I could too. So that's why she has been kind of meaningful for me. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm always watching, it's my film school. I didn't yeah. go to regular film school. This was the film school that I had and uh, it's why I've always been so singularly focused on directors and um, wanting to understand how they do what they do. And I think one of the greatest thrills that I get now is being able to stand behind a director's shoulder and, and understand why, how he gets to the decisions that he gets to. It,
0: looking at the films you've made, they're tough movies, not, even, not in the, even, like, the conventional way, like, this was, like, a $200 million movie that was, like, really embattled or whatever. But, like, they're not obvious movies. I mean, The Beaver, Little Man Tate, the movies you haven't directed. I mean, I followed, you know, Flora Plum, and I remember, you know, the Reef you Stall movie that we, you tried to get going. These are all tough projects to mount. What, yeah. <laughs> um, it must take a lot out of you, like, frankly. So clearly the love is there, or else you wouldn't get back on the horse every... Yeah,
1: it's it's um, it takes everything out of you because it comes from you, you know, and I I just feel like what's the point of making a movie as a director if you can't 100% defend it with everything you have in your body. And, um, you know, these movies are the story of my life. And they're everything that I have to say on the subject. And that doesn't mean that they're good. It just means that they are 100% true to me. And, um, and, you know, I have to take the years that it takes to shape those films in order to uh, kind of download my spirit onto them. And, you know, that's, that's a big undertaking. So, yeah, I don't do as many movies as a lot of people do because I have a different reason for directing than a lot of people do. Did Little
0: Man Tate affect your relationship with your mom in any ways? Obviously, part, part of that is autobiographical. I mean, not in literal sense, but this is about yeah. a mother-child relationship, a child yeah. that is a prodigy. Uh, what did she think of Little Man Tate and did it change things in the relationship at all?
1: Yeah, she really loved the movie and I think she was very proud of the film. And, um, and I think the film is a, is a is a loving tribute to that relationship between a, a parent, certain, certainly a mother and a child. Um, and he has two mothers in that movie in some ways. You know, he has the Diane Weiss character and right. my character. So he's pulled between two different ideas. Um, and I felt like that uh, symbolically was what I felt like growing up, that I was pulled between having a somewhat, I don't know if it's a prodigious brain, but a brain that was doing prodigious things and a heart that was feeling prodigious things. And yeah. I was torn between the two and I thought I had to choose between them. And there was a lot of conflict with that. And that kind of in the film is is demonstrated by these two women that are pulling for him and saying, no, you're mine, no, you're mine, no, you're mine. You know?
0: you, you've admirably, I think, stood by friends who have had troubles that you've collaborated with over the years Mm -hmm. infamously I mean, the beaver stuff coincided sadly with a lot of stuff that Mel was going through and that publicity tour sadly ended up being like the Mel Gibson apology tour for you right I'm sure that colors that experience I mean Downey's talked about home for the holidays and that was a really tough time for for him Mm -hmm. talk to me about like as a filmmaker and as a friend seeing someone going through that what that experience was like for you Mm -hmm. specifically on that film, because it's just amazing to see his journey and the other side he's come out on, too.
1: Yeah. Um, Well, you know, people, um, we're family members. That's what we do on movie sets. You know, we're family members and um, people make mistakes. And, um, you know, I sometimes I say to my kids, I say, like, listen, if you ever do something terrible, like you, I don't know, I, I shouldn't say it. Because this is gonna be a bad quote, but you know, if you blow up a building, just know that I am going to bring you to the police station and then I'm gonna visit you in your cell every single day and I'm gonna get you an awesome attorney. But I am going to, I am going to take you to the police station. Like <laughs> you um you don't stop loving somebody just because they make bad choices or they um are st- are struggling, you know. So that 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 that's that's been very true. I mean, with Downey, like what's interesting is both for Downey and for Mel Gibson, just because you mentioned those two, um, making movies has been very healing for them. Um, And I really believe that what Mel brought to the beaver what he expressed as a character, the, the bravery that he showed to be a broken man in that movie, somebody who is totally and completely lost and uh, is struggling with how to rebuild again, you know, uh, struggling with his with his mental illness. that was just such a brave performance. And I will always be grateful for that. And, and I think it was very healing for him.
0: Um, one other movie just as a, as a fan hit me at the right time in the right space. And I'm a fan of Zemeckis always is your work with him on Contact. Um, I know uh-huh. Carl Sagan who we lost in the, in the middle of that production was a huge part of the reason for doing that and his spirit is in that film. Um, I talked I talk to George Miller actually recently and I know he was going to direct that. Were you on board when George was going to direct and did it change a lot from George's interpretation to Zemeckis's?
1: Yeah, originally it was a George Miller movie, and um, we, we got very close. Um, we went to the, he went to the studio. He had everything uh, figured out in terms of the plates that he would need and the, um, all the, the, they didn't have CG then, but the special effects that they needed. And um, this, yeah, it did not work out, did not work well for George. Was um, it a,
0: a, a dramatically different film?
1: Yes, it was a dramatically different film. Um, (laughs) It was very much in the spirit of Lorenzo's oil, which is a film that I loved. You know, um, it almost had an eraser head quality to it. I mean, it was was a very different tone. It was was an elaborate, beautiful art film. Wow. um, Where there were moments where, you know, you'd follow ants, you'd just be with the ants. You know, it was really, really a trippy, wonderful movie. Um, and when they decided to go in a different direction and Zemeckis came aboard, um, that he took a year. You know, Zemeckis took a year rewriting the script and uh, calling people at NASA and really grounding in the factual, right. uh, grounding it in facts, like he 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 wanted to start fresh. And I appreciate that movie too, but I also know that some somewhere out there would have been an amazing George Miller movie.
0: Oh yeah, I mean, he's the definition of a mad genius. I will follow yeah. him to whatever, wherever ends he takes us. Mm-hmm. Um, your directing uh, career going forward, you've made a lot of. Uh, I mean, you did Money Monster in recent years, but you've done a lot in streaming. As everyone yeah. is, anyone who's mm-hmm. smart knows that's where the creativity and the opportunities are mm-hmm. right now. Are you of a split mind? I know I am as a film fan. I love streaming and I'm devouring all of it. I'm also like, i admit, I feel a personal existential crisis about theatrical. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what movies are going to yeah. look like in a year, let alone in five years. Um, as someone that's lived their life loving movies, like just give yeah. me a sense of where your head's at in the negotiation between streaming and theater. We all
1: we all need to go into group therapy a little bit Seriously, about it because yeah. you know we have nostalgia about sitting in a movie theater because it shaped our lives and you know we believe that that is the primo experience of having movie experiences, being surrounded by people and and, and living that in community together and on the big screen, the immersion of that. But you know. Th- New times, so um, we knew they were coming. It's yep. been happening for the last 15 years. You know, we knew that the films were being ghettoized into two categories, one which was the over $100 million big franchise films that the studios felt comfortable betting their whole, you know, five-year plan on, um, and that the rest of the movies that were real narrative um, would be in the streaming platform. And we knew that was coming, and that's exactly what happened. And um, I mean, I don't know about you, but right now it's like I'm so much more excited by movies that are coming out on streaming than anything else that um they kind of both made their beds and laid in it. I mean, the studios like to point their fingers at streaming and saying, it was your fault, no yeah. you did it you 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 know you created this technology and this and the platforming systems, Netflix specifically come out and say, yeah, well, you were making terrible movies because you didn't believe in narrative and in the audience's taste, so too bad everybody left you. You know they're all pointing at each other, and right. it was a confluence of of events that that basically changed the moving habits of um, film goers. And I just don't know that they're ever going to come back.
0: Some folks uh, you got caught a little flack a few years ago when you were honest, and I think that's totally fine. Superhero movies aren't for everybody, but you were kind of like you know these two hundred million dollar superhero movies maybe aren't made for me, and they're not made for everybody. Um, have you? Do you still get, uh, follow that path? Have you found anything in that realm that, that that you find stimulating intellectually, emotionally or
1: I think they're great. I just don't think every movie has to be that and yeah. um, some people want that uh, you know if you're going to pay fifty dollars or however much it costs you now to go to a movie theater, you're going to want to sit in the seat with your veins out and just you just want to have like you know you want to have this massive immersive takeover experience where your body is taken over. And that's what people have grown to want from that yeah. experience. And I get that. I mean, I loved, you know, um, I loved yeah. Iron Man. I loved the original Iron Man. And there's, there's movies that I think are, are, are really well done and well-crafted. And it's just, this, th- those aren't the movies that changed my life. Yeah. So I wanna make the movies that changed my life. And if I have to make them on a phone this big, I'll make them on a film.
0: Are the, one, uh, the next directing opportunity, is it something that you've explored in the past? Is it like, would you ever go back to Flora Plum or Leni Refinstall or those kind of put to bed? No,
1: down? those ships sailed. Um, I struggled with them for many years and those ships kind of sailed, I think. And um, yeah. certainly certainly for Flora Plum, there were other movies that were made where they took them directly from our film. You know, they just... Yeah. <laughs> so there's no point in making them because somebody else took all our, our, our stuff and made them already. Um... Lenny, maybe will be made by somebody else. I've definitely grown too old to play Lenny. Maybe I'll play the hundred-year-old Lenny. <laughs> uh, maybe that'll be—I'll play her at hundred.
0: There you go. And what is what is what stuff have you been watching lately? Uh, lastly, just in the stream in the streaming space, series or or film-wise that has excited uh, you, inspired you.
1: You know, it, we're at the Oscar release phase, so I, yeah. I've got a ton of movies that I want to watch. Um, and a ton of documentaries, too. I mean, that's, that. this has been, that's been a wonderful byproduct of the streaming revolution has been that people have discovered documentaries and now they have a place in our lives, which is great. Um, I'm trying to think, I mean, you know, the movies of this year that have really touched me, well, you know, Nomadland, I suppose, they're all gonna be the movies that we know about. This documentary, Time, I thought was just yeah. amazing. Yeah, yeah. Um, what have I been watching on streaming? I haven't been watching streaming at all. I kind of got bored with watching streaming. Um, I saw everything that I wanted to see, and now I'm waiting for new content. Um, well,
0: luckily, we know it's coming because there is an embarrassment of riches. And I was, I was worried the, the well would run dry with this crazy year we've had, but clearly they've, they found protocols that, that work, and we're gonna, yeah. we're not gonna. Yeah,
1: I guess. I think a lot of my friends are starting now. They're starting shooting they? now, and um, they're on TV series and stuff and getting their, you know, noses prod every other day. And it <laughs> seems to be working.
0: Excellent. Um, I really do appreciate the, the time today. Happy uh, 30th Silence of the Lambs, however you, you celebrated it in your home. I'm sure that's an annual <laughs> holiday. Um, <laughs> and um, yeah, as you can tell, I'm such an admirer of your work and the way you've, you've also lived your life. So I, I appreciate you sharing a, a little time with me today to reminisce. Oh, my pleasure. And so ends another edition of Happy, Sad, Confused.